invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. And if you need a Bible this morning, you can take the one that's in front of you and you'll find our text, John 21, on page 907. We are continuing what we began on Easter morning, this little mini-series looking at the appearances of Christ, different interactions that the risen Christ had with uh, his disciples. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 15 through 19, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 so that we have the whole context of what's taking place here. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word this morning, we would ask 
that you would come and by your Spirit's power open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive what you have for us. Father, please work in that very place that we need it this morning. You know us. You know us, Lord. So please do your bidding, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. It has been good uh, in recent years. It's been good for me to watch my University of Tennessee friends in recent years get their volunteer pride back. You know, I know it's, I know it's been a little bit of a stretch. I'm not a Tennessee fan. I think most of you know that. And far, far from it. But I can appreciate, I can appreciate the history, the legacy, especially of Tennessee football. I understand um, the great pride that there can be in that. And I, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's back. Some of you may uh, have heard me relay the story, my first experience ever in Neyland Stadium. It took me a long time in my life to ever finally get there. Um, I'd heard all the stories about how big it was, how loud it was. And uh, it was uh, several years ago that my friend Andrew Kiesling, I spoke about him last week, some of you know him. Andrew invited me to go to a game at Neyland Stadium, and I was excited to go. Uh, I'm, I'm positive that the reason Andrew had invited me to go to the game was that he was positive that Tennessee was going to beat my beloved Florida Gators. So that's the only reason he invited me is because he knew he was going to win. I was pretty convinced that Tennessee was going to win as well, but I thought I really enjoy Andrew and I got to see this place that everybody talks so much about. Um, So I went there. The buzz that week leading up to the game uh, centered around uh, the University of Tennessee captain, All-American uh, defensive tackle Justin Harrell, who the week before had torn his bicep. And the, and the buzz that week was, is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Uh, Tennessee wasn't releasing any information about him. And some people were speculating, you know what? He's going to have a long NFL career. This is his last year. He can just, you know, go ahead and get the thing repaired, start rehab, prepare for the draft. Other people were thinking, this is Florida, Tennessee. He's got to play. And nobody knew. Nobody knew what was going on. We get to the stadium there, and man, it was right. All the, all the legends about how huge it was. It is. It was massive, absolutely massive. And I was certainly wowed by that stadium. And as we sat there, even before the game began, it was loud. The people was filling up, packed. And, 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 and as people cheered and did different things, it was just, it was a loud place. I was very impressed. And then right before the team runs out of the big T, you know, that great moment. Right before that, the Jumbotron starts going. And uh, on the Jumbotron are all these, all these clips of great Tennessee moments, great Tennessee football moments. Um, and people are cheering as they see plays that they remember. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of those clips, they start playing clips of great plays by Justin Harrell. Ooh, all of a sudden... A murmur goes around the crowd and everybody's starting to, to wonder, what does this mean? Why is that happening? And then the clip's going back and forth between Justin Harrell and Tennessee football. And then it just stops. And on the big jumbotron is just the big face and shoulders of Justin Harrell. And he's staring into the camera and he says, coach, I want to play football for Tennessee just one more time. The place erupted. I thought the whole stadium would explode. People jumped up and they're like, yes, 
I hate Tennessee football. I grew up hating Tennessee football. I jumped up. I was like, yes, me too. I want to play football for Tennessee one more time. Ah, that is the passion and impulse of Peter. Peter, the disciple who was ready to go with the Lord anywhere. It was Peter. It was Peter who, when Jesus came walking on the water towards the boat, it was Peter who said, Lord, let me get out of the boat and come to you. I'm sure the disciples, other disciples were like, what? What are you thinking? But Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on water. He sinks. Jesus has to help him. Nevertheless, it was Peter. It was Peter who, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, some of them said, well, some say you're John the, the, John the Baptist come back from the dead or Elijah come back from the dead. And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was Peter who at the last supper, when Jesus was talking about who would betray him, it was Peter who stood up and said, I will never betray you. Never. Even if everybody here betrays you, I will never betray you. It was Peter who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword. Why does he have a sword? He's a fisherman. Peter pulls out a sword and slices off Malchus's ear. Now make no mistake. Let's be clear about this. It wasn't because Peter was a great swordsman. He wasn't like doing a warning shot. I'll take your ear off and you know what? I'll do more. No, it was was Peter missed. That's what happened. But there he was with the sword, passionate about that moment. And yet, just hours later, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. Luke records it like this in Luke chapter 22. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little bit later, someone else saw Peter and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. What a grievous sin, even evil. I wonder how that lingered with Peter. Even after the resurrection, I wonder, did Peter feel overwhelmed with shame all the time? Was it always before him? Or did Peter try to shove it in a corner and compartmentalize it and try to just forget that it happened, trying to shove it over there? Was it something that ate at Peter constantly? Was it something that made Peter think, I'm, I've, I'm disqualified from being a disciple. I'm certainly disqualified from leading the disciples. I wonder if the passion is now gone. 
And I wonder, did Peter even feel badly about that? I used to be passionate about Christ. I used to be the first one to go. But I'm not that way anymore. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought there was a passion in my life with Jesus at an earlier time? Maybe when I was in middle school or I was in high school or I was in college or I was in my 20s, I felt passionate about Christ. There was an earlier time when I felt the desire to follow him wholeheartedly with everything I have, with everything that I was, when I knew that my identity was firmly in Christ and I, and I felt the joy of that. And I felt that that's all I wanted. I didn't care what else I was known as, as long as I was known as Christ. Where, I, where, where you knew the mission, where you knew what you wanted to do. You had, you had hopes and dreams of what you were going to do for Christ, with Christ. But then, but then a sin that you thought you would never commit. A sin that you thought for sure you would never do. You committed that sin. Maybe it wasn't a big sin. Maybe instead for you, it's been just, just little sins, just drifting. There was a passion and a mission and identity that you pursued, but now you've let life and your idols and everything else swallow you up and sit here this morning, you're, yeah, I'm a Christian. But the shame and the struggle either of that big sin that you couldn't believe you would ever commit or the drifting And the lack of passion makes you feel not very useful anymore. What does Jesus do with people like us? What does Jesus do with Peter? See in this text that we have before us, verses 15 through 19, four things that Jesus does with people who are struggling with a sense of lost passion, great sin, drifting, maybe aimlessness. The first thing is this, Jesus pursues Peter. Jesus pursues Peter. Does that seem like a theme? Some of you were taking notes last week. You're like, well, Todd, that was, that was the first point of last week. Jesus pursues Thomas. Is this a theme? Yes, it is. (laughs) It's the theme of our whole Bibles. Jesus pursuing us, coming after us. Not that we come after him, but that he comes after us. Peter is back fishing. Was that okay? Scholars and pastors argue about whether or not it is, whether or not we should be critical of Peter because he was back fishing and the resurrections happened. What are you doing back fishing? Other pastors would say, well, Jesus told them to go to Galilee and wait for him. They are fishermen going back and forth. We're not quite sure whether or not that's what Peter should have been doing. What we are sure from the text, when you look at the original language, is that this statement in verse 3, I'm going fishing, and the response by the others, we're going to go with you, is aimless. There's no plan. This isn't a resurrection strategy. It's just the thought for the moment. They're not pursuing Jesus. They're not looking for him But Jesus shows up on the shore looking for Peter. 
Jesus pursues. Secondly, Jesus fully forgives Peter's sin. Isn't it interesting? Peter hasn't brought up the subject, apparently, with anyone of what happened that night. But Jesus is going to bring up the subject. Jesus has some surgery to do with Peter. You see, Jesus doesn't come to overlook our sin. Jesus comes to forgive our sin. And so Jesus is going to go right to the heart, right at the heart of Peter. And that's why he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? What does he mean more than these? Again, scholars, pastors debate this. Three possibilities. Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Peter, do you love me more than you love these fishing tools, these, this fishing life? We're not sure. But it could be any one. It could be all three because the point is love. Simon, do you love me more than anything else? More than anything else. Do you love me? Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't say to Peter, will you serve me? Jesus doesn't say to Peter, even do you believe in me? Will you obey me? He says to Peter, do you love me? Jesus here is going to give the gift of full repentance to Peter. And it is a gift, brothers and sisters. You and I, you and I would not repent except that Christ in his grace to us brings conviction of sin into our own hearts and leads us to repentance by that grace. Make no mistake, repentance, full repentance is a gift from the Lord. And God is going to give, Jesus is going to give Peter this gift of full repentance. The intensity here in the text is is clear. Several things that Jesus does to show how surgical this forgiveness is going to be, how how full and complete it's going. He's going to get everything on the table. Peter has a cancer. He's going to get all of it. He's going to go after every single bit of it. So he starts by saying, Simon. That is Peter's given name, but don't you remember Earlier in the Gospels, though his name was Simon, it was Jesus who said, I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going to call you Peter. You see, Simon meant shaky. Jesus says, I'm not going to call you shaky. I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you rock, rock like. You're not going to be shaky. You're going to be rock like. And yet, in this moment, referring to that night, Peter was not very rock-like. He was shaky. And so Jesus says, shaky, do you love me? Three times. Three times. That's not a coincidence. It's directly related to that night. Jesus is drawing every one of those moments out, making Peter remember Full repentance. This is out of love. This is not Jesus dragging Peter through the mud. This isn't 
This isn't Jesus making Peter pay. Peter could never pay for what he's done. Christ has paid for it on the cross. Instead, he wants to make sure that the sin is not just overlooked, but that it's forgiven. That the shame is not just covered, but that it's taken care of. And so three times he goes there. There's one more thing here in the text that shows the intensity of what Jesus is doing. And it's found in verse 9. Verse 9, it says, when they got out, of the land, got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. A charcoal fire. John, why go to the specifics? Why go to that detail, John? Charcoal fire. There is one, only one other place in all of John's gospel where John says there was a charcoal fire. And you'll find it in John chapter 18. The fire that Peter stood around in the high priest's courtyard when he denied Jesus. It was a charcoal fire. Jesus is doing surgery here because he loves Peter. And it's tough. It's so tough that Peter, as he responds, can't even appeal to himself. Can't even, he doesn't have an answer other than finally all that he appeals to. All that he appeals to is the 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 omniscience, the sovereign knowledge of the Lord himself. He says finally, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You can see inside my mind and heart. You know I love you. Jesus pursues. Jesus fully forgives sin. Thirdly, Jesus restores Peter's usefulness. Three times he asks him, Simon, do you love me? Three times Peter responds, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus replies, feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my lambs. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, serve my church. You haven't been disqualified, Peter. Serve my church, there's ministry for you. Peter's sin has not disqualified him from serving in Christ's church. And friends, it doesn't disqualify you either. It doesn't disqualify you either. Now, a word of warning right here, because sometimes in, in, in the last 20 or 30 years in the church in the United States, I feel like we have been uh, too quick to restore because we haven't understood what repentance and forgiveness really means. And so we've been quick to cover up sin and say, well, we don't want to judge the person. So let's get them back and in, in, you know, in, into ministry, let's get them back. Yeah. They've, they confessed it. They've asked for forgiveness. Uh, sometimes we've moved way too quickly and we haven't been very biblical about it. And there's also the case in which there's just certain things that when you commit certain sins, you can't go back into those particular things that happens even in the world. If you're a banker, if you're a banker, there's a lot of things you can do wrong and confess and still be a banker, but you can't embezzle money. Even if you pay it back, you can't then turn around and be a banker still. You're not going to get a job. Or if you're a lawyer and you lie under oath, you can, you can confess it. You can be restored as a brother in Christ. You can be restored in the community, um, but you probably can't be a lawyer anymore. And I would say that for those of us who are in full-time ministry, vocational ministry, like pastors, I believe along with a lot of my peers and a lot of my mentors, 
And if a pastor is involved in any kind of infidelity, sexual infidelity or adultery, particularly with someone in the, of the flock, they can confess their sin. They can be restored as a brother of Christ to the family of God. But I don't think they can be a pastor anymore. I think their ministry needs to be some way else. But make no mistake, no matter what your sin is, when you've been fully forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ repentant, repent, through repentance and restoration, there's ministry for you in the church of Jesus. It may not be what you did before, but you're not disqualified. You're not supposed to sit on the sidelines. No. Jesus restores you to usefulness. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we're a whole community full of sinners. If sin were the disqualifying factor for having the ability to serve in the church, well, we would all be in deep trouble. (laughs) Christ comes to restore usefulness. Restoration is always possible with Jesus. There's a ministry for Peter. There's a ministry for you. Jesus pursues. Jesus fully forgives Jesus restores usefulness. And finally, Jesus calls Peter back to mission. There in verse 19, after he's done everything, after all of this conversation, Jesus says to Peter again, follow me. That is, that is our mission. Your ministry or or the way you live out that mission might look different. It might be that you're a teacher. It might be uh, that you're in business. It might be right now that you're a student. It might be that you're in full-time vocational ministry. And that may be the, the way that you live out your mission. But the mission is to follow Christ. That's our calling And here, Jesus calls Peter back to the mission, the very thing that he was once passionate about. He says, come back, follow me. Come, Peter, follow with faithfulness. Come follow with with your passion, wholeheartedness. Jesus calls us to that. No matter how long you've been wandering, how long you've, you've been holding on to this sense of what used to be in your life right now in this moment, Jesus, through his word, calls you back to this mission. Follow him like you once did, faithfully, passionately, wholeheartedly, with everything that you have and everything that you are. I wonder if Peter thought, can I even do that? Will I be able to do that? Will I be able to follow Jesus faithfully, passionately, wholeheartedly? Wonderfully, Jesus gives Peter assurance right there in the text in verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, hey, Peter, you know what? This is what's going to happen in your life. This is how at the end of your life, you are going to glorify me by the way that you die. Yes, Peter, you will be faithful to the end. In fact, you'll you'll be faithful and passionate that even in death, you will glorify. He describes, Jesus describes crucifixion. And we know through tradition that Peter did die being crucified. 
didn't. It said that Peter said, please crucify me upside down. I do not deserve to die the way my Savior died. Here, Jesus gives Peter the assurance Peter, I know you feel shaky. I know you wonder about your passion and your faithfulness. I'm going to get you to the end. Philippians chapter 1, a verse that many of us have memorized, reminds us of that truth for every believer. When Paul writes in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As a promise that he'll see you to the end, that he'll see me to the end. It's like Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, you're not always faithful, but I am. And I will get you there. And Jesus says to all of us, you're not always faithful. You won't be. But I am, Jesus says, and I will get you there. I will get you home safely. Loved ones, this is a picture, the reality of the risen Christ, not just for Peter, but for you. This is Christ coming, not just to Peter 2,000 years ago, but coming to you and me this morning, pursuing you, forgiving you. Restoring you to usefulness and calling you to mission. And so the question comes with that to all of us this morning. Do you love him more than these? Do you love him more than these? Whatever the these are. Do you love him? Not do you believe in him? Not do will you serve him? Not will you obey? Do you love him? Do you love him more, more than the life you've put together? Do you love him more than the possessions that you have? Do you love him more than the, sec- the future you've seemed to secure? Do you love him more than your friends? Do you love him more than your family? Do you love him more than the possibility of a spouse? Do you love him more than the possibility of children? Do you love him more than the spouse you have? Do you love him more than the children do you have? Do you love him more than the reputation you have? Do you love him more than the idols you've made? Then the comfort you seek, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Whatever the answer, whatever you're struggling with right now, I invite you to come again and be restored by the risen Christ. Come with all your junk and your, your wandering, your sin, your, dis, your, your, your passionless life. Sit by that charcoal fire with Jesus. 
be restored by the risen Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. Thank you for the honesty, for the clarity. Thank you most of all for Jesus, the one who has loved us with an amazing love, who has loved us before we loved him. Oh, Father, may your spirit so work in our hearts that we might be given the gift of repentance again and again and be assured that though we are unfaithful, he is faithful and he will see us to the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.